Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we start, I would like to draw your attention to my weekly email newsletter, Friday Focus. Each Friday, I focus on one topic with one action arising. The link to sign up is in the show notes or head over to amyrolinson.com and sign up right now. Today on Focus on Why, I am joined by Trish McGurr. Trish, a very warm welcome. Thank you, Amy. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, we've been brought together by the wonderful Lisa Brown. So thank you, Lisa, for bringing us together. And I'm really excited to share your why, your story. And let's just dive straight in, Trish. So what is it you're doing at the moment? Well, I've been involved in property since 2003. Prior to that, I had a, um, a consulting business and I was a mental health nurse. And uh, and I came into property having emerged from um, a difficult divorce. It took me 10 years of my life, um, Amy, to get back on track emotionally as well as financially. When I became involved in property, uh, the first two properties I bought Um, And this is by accident, by the way. The first two properties I bought had both been repossessed. I bought them at auction and they had been repossessed. And the the guy that was helping me get started on the property ladder, we went to see the, the second of our houses. And I opened the drawer in the kitchen and in the drawer, there was a child's dummy and there were notifications from the bank um, obviously saying that the house was, that, that they were to be evicted and all this kind of stuff. And I started to cry in the kitchen and he could not understand why I was crying. He said, Trish, the house isn't that bad. It's actually quite good. It's a good investment. And and my why came about because once upon a time, that was me. Uh, so my very first foray into property was houses that, uh, that had clearly been taken back by the bank because of a financial difficulty. And I hadn't told him, and in fact, I had never told anybody up to that point, that I once, when I when I got divorced, I found myself in terrible debt. Um, I had way too much month left at the end of the money. <laughs> and, and I simply struggled for years to get my finances in order in spite of having a good job. And along that process, I tried to kill myself. I got fed up with debt. And I, and I know from personal experience just how difficult it is to live under that weight. And the big why that drives me and has always driven me in property has been um, understanding that behind every property sale, there is a story. Uh, a bit like a bit like here, you know, there is a why behind what drives us. And what drives me is um, understanding that people struggle and that they need not be afraid and we can help. Wow, that that is a huge couple of minutes intro into you I don't know where to start in, in unpicking all of those different elements Trish let's start with the 10 years getting back on track in terms of what was going on for you before during and after yeah before um so before I before I went through my divorce uh, I, I I was the probably the woman that looked like I had it all I had a I had a great career. I specialised earlier on early on in my career in the NHS. I, so I was a mental health nurse, 
but I was a mental health nurse specialist so, and I was the youngest at the top end of the clinical grade at one point in the UK. I was the youngest ever at that grade. And uh, and that was a bit of a testament. I was always a bit of an overachiever um, in a lot of ways. But in behind that overachievement, particularly in my, you know, in my marriage and even prior to my marriage, I had real trouble with managing money. And part of that, as I subsequently found out from doing a lot of work on myself, was about making up for deficits I believed I had in my character. So so before all this happened, that's what I was doing. I had a great career. I had the house. I had the brand new baby. I had the husband. I had the car. I had the holidays. And everything on the surface looked picture perfect. Um, I was tipped, obviously, to go further in my career. So I was everything, the trajectory and everything was beautiful. The image was Instagram worthy prior to Instagram. But in behind closed doors, I was desperately unhappy. Um, mostly with myself. Uh, I was juggling my finances. I was juggling my relationship and things were just a big facade. And the one thing I was incredibly good at is putting on a brave face and cracking on with things. You did make me laugh when you were describing that you had a house, a car and a brand new baby. Most people talk about having a brand new house and a brand new car, but you had the brand new baby instead. I had, I every, that. I had it all. <laughs> I had all the life stresses at the same time, of course. Well, <laughs> but, and and having that, being that desperately unhappy inside, did you share that with anyone? I I was the classic case of, um, dare I say this, people talk about being resilient. My, my resilience, uh, if I would say it was almost ego driven, I, I because I was, I was afraid, I was ashamed of what was really going on in the background. Um, and so I, I covered things up. I didn't want to burden other people with what I was going through in my life. And in actual fact, some of that was also being completely guilt-ridden about how can things not be great when on the surface they're great? How can I, how can this be um, that I'm not who I appear to be? And I had huge imposter syndrome and I kept all of that stuff to myself. And it's toxic. It's absolutely toxic to do that. And you're talking about being a mental health nurse and yet suffering yourself in silence and and having that imposter syndrome, which a lot of people may think is a, a veneer and a superficial veneer in terms of I'm not good enough from a career perspective. But this is going across the board here. This is all different elements. This is going much deeper. Very, very. I, I, again, if, if you if you look at yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was another thing that drove me to keep it to myself. I was a mental health nurse. My job was to put my happy face on, drop my baby off at nursery, go to my job. I had a caseload and I supervised because I was a senior clinician. I supervised other mental health staff to do their jobs well. And I simply had to try and bundle, you know, people talk about compartmentalizing their life. And I literally tried to go out the door, put my happy smile on, get in my car and be the person that was expected. And there's only for so long you can do that. There's only so long before the the two worlds start to collide. And did you think that by putting on that happy face that it would manifest, it would eventually switch and it would work itself out? Oh, 100%. You know, there's a lot of talk now about mindset and and mindset of itself will, will help you. But if we don't deal with the fundamentals of what's really going on at the very core of ourselves, 
um, mindset will, again, it's like putting a sticking plaster over a gaping wound. It will only get you so far. I'm, I mean, I, I, I'm all for mindset, but I'm also mindful um, that it is used as, as if that's all it takes to get yourself out of some very difficult situations. It takes so much more than that. Uh, and I'm driven, I'm driven by that, that belief and I'm driven, you know, by that value system. So what happened? You you said it took you 10 years to get back on track. We're, we're at the point now where you've got it all. You've got the, the veneer that you're putting up. What happened? I, um, I mean, I reached a point when it's simply uh, something had to give. And and what gave first was it was effectively the, my relationship. I, 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 you know, I believe that it was unsalvageable. I, I, I took a lot of guilt for that, you know, I, uh, and and our finances, as I say, were absolutely in free fall. And it just manifested itself more in however, however well, whatever next stage I took in my career, the, the money trouble seemed to go with it. Uh, and again, part, a lot of that was doing with my money management. Um, my, uh, I, I tell the story, um, you know, from my background as a child, and, and this up to a point explains some of my, my behavior. It wasn't that I was a spendthrift, you know, I would I would spend money wastefully on a lot of things. I mean, I did, but the reason I did it was often to make up for deficits. So deficits in my character to make myself feel happy, we, you know, we'd go on a holiday or deficits to make up for being unhappy in my relationship. I'd go and I'd, I'd buy stuff for other people to make them happy and to make myself popular. Um, and and that, that pattern of not being enough I talk about drug use and, and I was a, spe- a specialist, not just in mental health, but in drug addiction. And I and I joke about this now because drug addiction, you you can be high and then you're coming down, you're high and then you're coming down. It's a roller coaster. And my relationship with money and my relationship with myself was a huge roller coaster. So in actual fact, I manifest into my life the very patterns of people that I was doing therapy with. <laughs> and it, except it didn't take, it, it, I couldn't see it. So what really happened eventually was the marriage uh, reached a point when I felt it was it was time to leave, except we owed more on the house than it was worth. So we were in negative equity and our interest rate at the time was 14 percent. So the payments per month were horrific. Um, you would think it's stupid leaving a relationship when you need two salaries, but something had to give. And the relationship simply reached a point when I, I just couldn't say any longer. Wow. So then what? I um, I moved out uh, with the help of my mum. I found a little cottage, uh, and actually I stayed in that cottage for fourteen years. Uh, of course, my credit was rubbish, um, so she had to help me financially, and she helped in, in whatever way she could. And uh, I so I moved into this cottage. I, I was I was working at that point two jobs to make ends meet. Um, and when the house was sold, when the marital home was sold. We had, we still had effectively another mortgage because we had to pay off the negative equity. It took 10 years of my life to repay all of the debt that I had. I didn't go bankrupt. I didn't know what, I mean, I was afraid of going bankrupt because of my position. I was afraid of going bankrupt because of my pride. And uh, I basically was in debt for another 10 years, still struggling, still doing the best I could to make ends meet, to get back on track. Um. A part of the way along that, you know, sort of two years after, you know, we'd separated and and I'd moved on, um, I I had found, I had found a new partner. I wasn't looking for him, <laughs> but I'd I'd moved in with a new partner, and but my life still felt like a drudge. It felt like every day was just getting up to work to pay debt, and never really getting ahead. 
and on on a night when it just felt like too much, Amy, I I crept downstairs um, into the kitchen. I thought everybody was better off without me, and under the weight of the expectation and never seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and the debt and the fact that I still hated myself, I I tried to commit suicide. I tried to hang myself. And and you know the 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 thing that I regret most about that time was that my little boy, um, who was about four at the time, um, was upstairs. And and without getting too graphic, you know, I, it was actually the calmest I had been in a long time. Um, I actually thought this was the solution to everything. So again, in spite of still being a mental health nurse and having a responsible job, it seemed to me the most logical thing to do because I had insurance and it would pay off all the other debts and everybody would be fine. Um, of course, that was total insanity. You know, I was absolutely insane at that moment in time. Uh, needless to say, I'm still here, so I didn't succeed. It wasn't a cry for help, absolutely not. I had every intention of it working. But something in that process made me stop. It made me suddenly want to live. Um, back to big why. Um, something at the point when it was pa almost past the point of no return, um, something made me want to live more than anything in the world partly my son partly because I thought my god you've gone insane Trish I managed to extricate myself um from the noose that I'd fastened for myself but I and I and I but I didn't tell anybody I did the same thing I covered it up I wore polo neck sweaters for weeks afterwards I did not tell a soul at work I didn't tell my GP I didn't tell my new partner I didn't tell anybody what I had done and the fear and the guilt and the shame surfaced all over again but but here's what I know and here's what I know from that experience you know I, I, I basically girded my loins and I thought I've got to make some changes I've got to make some changes in me um, I've got to make some changes in my on my perspective in life because because this is about money but the moneyism is an is a is a manifestation of who I am so if we're talking manifestation, that's what it was about. Uh, and I realized uh, and spent time looking at, you know, how did I get to this? How did I not just get to the stage of my finances? How did I get to the stage in my emotional state when this seemed like a good idea? And, and I, I determined that I would change the pattern and change the direction of my life somehow. I didn't know how, but I knew I had to make changes. Um, and one of the changes I decided to make was to leave the NHS, to leave the very thing that was giving me the, the salary. Um, and I had an opportunity to leave the NHS. I was made redundant. I, I you know, they were making change at the time and I convinced them to make me redundant. Uh, and then realised I was only going to get 12 weeks salary. So I thought, oh, crumbs, <laughs> that's not going to help. Um, but but I agree, I am an absolute believer in pivotal moments. You know, one pivotal moment was obviously leaving my relationship. The next pivotal moment was um, clearly not wanting to live anymore. A big pivotal moment was leaving the NHS. And I ended up working for a local authority. I got a job I was underqualified for. But uh, the director of education, I remember every person in every part of my of my story. The director of education at Wigan Council, as it was saw something in me that he liked. He saw a spark, he saw an enthusiasm, he saw an empathy and all the things that I still am. And he gave me a chance to come and work with one of their big partnerships. And I did that for four years. And as a result of that, 
opportunity. I got the chance to work with the Home Office. I got the chance to work with the Department of Education and Skills. Uh, and on the basis of that, four years later, I set up a consulting business. And that transformed me and it transformed my finances and it transformed my opportunity to work with and influence so many more people. So I believe everything happened for a reason. Yeah. And it's so interesting, isn't it? That where you think that things couldn't get any worse in terms of leaving security and you think that's not going to make things better, it actually did. It Absolutely. Again, I'm not going to suggest suddenly everything, you know, the clouds parted, the sun shone and, you know, oodles of money fell in my bank. It, in total, as I said, it took 10 years to even be in a position to, to, to do much with my finances. My credit was ruined. Um, again, I had to rebuild my whole relationship with money. But, but having then set up a consulting business, the consulting business enabled me to come into property. And, and, and I came into property purely because having worked in a local authority, having worked in the NHS, and then having my own business, I had no pension plan. And I was starting to develop my own, uh, you know, a, a better ability to understand myself and money and my relationship with money. Uh, and it was because of that I said, right, I'm going to need something to plan for the future. And I and I hit upon property as a, as a solution. And because my consulting business had enabled me to repair my credit eventually and put myself in a decent position, I was able to start investing and able to start investing more in myself. And, and I've never been able to do that. I'd never really had the confidence. I'd never really had the money to be able to invest in myself and even invest in assets. Um, and that was another big pivotal moment, which then led me to that those first two properties. And, and I could... I could sense standing in in that in that property that when I said I opened the kitchen drawer, I could sense all of the trauma, all of the hurt, all of the fear, all of the guilt that had been going on in behind closed doors in that house. It transported me back 10 years previous. And I knew that I could help people just like me. Wow. So seeing the the dummy and the repossession papers as you open that kitchen drawer focused your completely on your why and, yeah, and yeah, gave absolutely. you gave you that real understanding for the reasons why all of that experience that you've had had to happen it, I, yeah it couldn't have happened any other way um I, I mean it didn't just bring me the knowledge of the process that people go through when they're struggling with their finances, but the emotional journey that they go through and what it does to relationships. And, you know, it was almost like, as I say, all of the elements of the things that I trained for, all the things that I uh, that I am good at, um, it brought every single element of that together in that, in that one moment. Um, you know, even even you know, trying to harm myself, trying to take my own life, it it brought everything suddenly into the sharpest relief that I'd found a niche, I'd found something that I that I that I knew uh, and that felt comfortable. And maybe that was that. Maybe it was that moment when you suddenly think, well, I'm not an imposter. I am completely worthy, and I do have something to offer. And you know, I can be unapologetically me. And and thank goodness you can. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it wasn't long before, you know, uh, moving along the, the, you know, what I do in property now, 
um, it wasn't long before I found other people who who ha- were having the same struggles. And again, maybe it's maybe it's because I'm Irish. Maybe it's because I just have you know I just have a way, and people people love to open up and talk to me. Uh, and it wasn't long before I found other property people who had who who had had careers, who had businesses, who had relationships that didn't work out. Uh, and and where there was a common thread around how they felt about themselves and their relationship with money, the story was playing out the same story over and over and over again. And the emotional roller coaster that people go through and the fear and the guilt and the shame. And I just thought, this can't be right. This it can't be right that people are suffering in plain sight the way I was. And let's go back to the main cause of of the deficits of what was happening you were trying to to feel happy you were trying to make other people feel happy you're trying to make people think see you and be popular and has how do you do that in a different way because or those deficits not there anymore well it's I think it's one of those things that we, we you know when if I go back again to my to my family history um and part of this is family history I think the world that we live in right now, uh, I think there's even more pressure to to appear to be successful, happy, uh, because nowadays, I mean, when it happened to me, there wasn't Instagram, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't YouTube, there wasn't. I mean, nowadays, I think there's, I think it's even harder to unapologetically say, look, I I am struggling with some of these things, and um, I am worried about my finances especially post-covid that you know average folk never mind business owners lots of people are really struggling um, to make ends meet but in the world that we're in right now we're we're conditioned we're heavily conditioned to to be happy to hustle and grind and that's all we have to do in order to be happy and the reality is we have an even bigger consumer society we have an even bigger um gap between people who have and people who don't but again, what I'm experiencing, what I see every day and what I see every week in my business now is that debt is a great leveler. Uh, because, as I say, we tie ourselves up often as if our value, as our worth as a person is directly proportionate to how much stuff we have um, or how successful we appear to be or how happy we appear to be. And, you know, your your value and your net worth are not the same thing. Uh, and I spend a lot of my time talking to people now about separating out those two. So tell me about the big why, the the mission that you met, you've got planned, Trish. I feel like there's something bumbling under the surface. Well, there, I mean, there is. I, I mean, I've spent say spent many years in property now talking to people who um, who come to me because they know um, that I've been there. They know my story. They know that I have no problem with talking about managing our finances and and how to deal with debt and how to have a healthy relationship with money. Um, but when we tie that into property, uh, and especially post-COVID, the, the thing that I set up um, in last September, October, I was doing this on my own. So people would come to me and if they wanted to sell their house or wanted me to buy their house, we, we may be able to help them out, stop them being repossessed. So in other words, stop them losing their home. But that wasn't enough. Stopping someone losing their home, just like me, stopping me losing my home didn't deal with my relationship with money because that was just a, we'll cut that bit off and you'll deal with that and you'll still have to live with it. 
So for me, it wasn't enough just to deal with that. And property people often deal in silos. You want to sell a house because you need some money or you need whatever will buy your house. Um, but they were asking me how to deal with people facing repossession. So I would do the formulaic thing. These are the things you can do if someone's struggling and need help. So I put together a simple training program to help people understand the process, to understand the legals. But I put in there understanding the person behind the story, because I think we have to understand what really drives people, because in behind closed doors, even if you buy their house, I think we have a, a responsibility, a duty of care to understand that people in debt, people in problem debt are often mentally under so much stress that they are literally potentially a moment away from the end in their lives. And the statistics are scary. 100,000 people a year in problem debt will attempt suicide. 6,000 will succeed. So 6,000 families will lose someone this year because of problem debt. And where you're facing losing your home, it throws in all sorts of other problems too, because that potentially is a breakup of your relationship, um, your kids, you could be homeless. And I, and I joke about this, but it's, a, but it's a serious consideration. If you need to move somewhere and you've no credit, where do you go? If you have pets and landlords won't accept pets, the pet that you've loved and cared for and whatever, it doesn't just break up your family, but, you know, but potentially you can't even take your pets with you. People think that's a small thing, but for some people, it's just a straw that breaks the camel's back. So I think we have a duty of care. So the big, the big why for me was to go from just teaching people how to do this and be respectful and know how to signpost people and know what, this, what the legal process is to why don't we do more? Why don't we, why don't we you know, nail our colours to the mast and pledge that we will help people who are in problem debt we will signpost them properly to places where they can get advice. We will ensure that they know how to get mental health support because it is a huge, huge part of the story. We will make sure we signpost them to legal advice and to financial advice. They, those are regulated activities. But to go beyond this, and, and I said, I want to create a fund. I want to create a bank that is aimed specifically at helping those who may need to sell and, for, and to give them back control over the process. Because what I would have loved at the time, instead of having to lose my home or move out and rent something else, is, is to control the process. In other words, agree a time and a place that the house could be disposed of. Because I, I did need to sell. I did have to sell. But I felt pressured to make it happen. Um, and so we set up something called Repossession Rescue Network. Um, we don't just train people how to handle folk who are in financial distress, but attached to that, we are actually in the process of launching our own real estate um, investment trust over the next three months. Um, and that will aim, be aimed at helping those who are most vulnerable and at risk of losing their homes. I, I absolutely love that you're setting up a REIT. And that's really cool, really impressive. You, you mentioned that it's even harder now for people to say they're struggling and that actually there are even more people who you probably wouldn't even feel were going through the struggle because they they had you know they've been fairly well off or they they've put themselves in different circumstances over the the pandemic what would we be looking for in terms of signs to or what could we ask friends and family to check yes. they're okay Yes. I, I, again, I think sometimes the the things that we overlook, um, as I said, it's, it's like that old thing hiding in plain sight. Um, 
people will people who are in problem debt will do a number of things. First of all, everything's always okay. Everything's always it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. But there's always that way it's okay, but it it's not great. Uh, so language wise, that they will they will you'll know there's something wrong. Friends and family will know there's something wrong, but they won't be able to put their finger on it. But they will inherently know that this person is just looking a little bit more um, downbeat, a little bit more stressed. They will avoid things like family events where they may have to spend money. Um, if you're in their homes, you may notice that there are a lot of letters hanging around that are not opened. Um, so a lot of the signs are hiding absolutely in plain sight. They, they may report they've got trouble sleeping. And they may report that their relationship is under strain, but they won't necessarily be able to say why. Um, and again, just in themselves, there is just a sense of melancholy often, uh, but they'll pass it off as, oh, you know, it's everybody struggling at the minute. So it's looking at those little signs. Oh, the obvious ones are they're starting to say they've missed some payments, and usually it'll be the credit card payments that go first. And, uh, you know, and once that happens, although those are unsecured debts, but the minute credit card payments start being missed, it's not long before the, the lenders will start to say, look, you know, you're in arrears, which affects the credit. So what we try to do as repossession rescue is educate people a wee bit more about getting what we call upstream. You don't have to be, you don't have to have had the court order before you take action. The sooner we get people to acknowledge that they've got some problems and they, and they know they're going to need some help, the sooner and the more options you actually have available to you. So part of our Part of our supporter network is about telling people, look, there are more options than you think. So, so again, looking for those little signs. And a lot of people say, I knew there was something wrong. The best thing you can say to someone seriously is just, I'm worried about you. Is there something that you need help with? Now, what's, what's interesting, Amy, is it's easier for someone in problem debt often to speak to a stranger than it is to speak to, to a member of, of friends or family, because they're often literally trying to juggle everything. So we have to bear that in mind, again, which is why our supporters are at the front of what we do. In local areas, if there's a supporter in your local area, we encourage them to kind of put themselves out there to say, look, we're not specific debt advisors, whatever, but we are part of a network that genuinely cares and understands what's happening. Speak to us. And we have countless reports at the moment of people who are doing just that, they're messaging on Facebook. They're sending stuff through LinkedIn. And these are cold calls. These are guys who are just saying, I've seen you talk about this and I just needed to, to speak to someone today. So I think we're on the right track. That's fantastic. And is there a divide? You mentioned that there are guys reaching out. Was that just a, a general term or do you mean that there are more men who are reaching out to you than women in terms of problem debt? Well, at the minute, um, it is it is actually more men. Uh, and again, a lot of statistics would suggest that a lot of men will will attempt suicide. Um, uh, men are more, uh, you know, technically speaking, more more vulnerable to suicide, especially impulsive suicide. In other words, they reach a point when it's like breaking point and that's it. And women are more likely to actually speak to someone. Men bottle things up. So again, this is where my, you know, my psychological training, my, my mental health training comes into the fore. You know, I say this, when people are, when people are trying to sort out their debt, you get guys, you get folk who say, why don't they just do something about it? Why don't they stop, stop sticking their head in the sand? Well, the process of being in debt is simple. 
when you're in debt, you will max out every credit line available to you in the hope that you can turn things around. So you'll keep going until there is no more credit available to you. When you get to that stage, a big fear and a big guilt kicks in and a whole pile of shame, which prevents you often from asking for help from friends and family. So in order to get people over that, we need to remove the fear, the guilt and the shame. And that's why it's easier often for people to speak to a stranger. Yeah, I understand. And when you said that you're educating people to get upstream, what, what I heard in that was the, the wonderful quote that Desmond Tutu said, and it was, it comes a point when we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. Absolutely. Oh, I, hundred percent, hundred percent. And again, relationship, our relationship with money and people's relationship with money, um, they are many, they are varied and they are complex. And to understand why someone has got into debt is one of the reasons, you know, that, that, down the line that we want to do more around the financial education and again it's not money mindset it's actually money management um, and helping people understand their own relationship with money um, i'm doing some talks sort of about money relationship using my story as an example and it's amazing how many people can just relate um to that process well, they can't argue with you because that's your story. That's what happened. And that, and then you're here you are to be able to tell the tale. And for people to understand, as you said, the person behind the story, that that is the critical. So they can understand what where you were, what happened and what you've done as a result. And yes. that is shining the light on on the purpose of what you're trying to achieve with others. Yes. And, and you know, my feeling was, and, and again, as you you've mentioned this, and I think it's a really important point. This isn't just about people on low incomes or on the poverty line. Um, we have we have spoken to people who've got property portfolios that are in trouble, businesses that are in trouble, which has had an impact, of course, on their family income. Uh, and it's every single type, age, you know, of person. And there's every single, every different story. The, the common process, I guess, is almost everybody in those scenarios has gone through that process that I've explained to you. They they try to manage it. They do the best they can. They are afraid of speaking out. They are guilty. They are shameful. And that, that makes the situation so much worse because instead of reaching out sooner, they leave it until it cannot be ignored anymore. And we want to change that. Yes, we do. <laughs> and and well done I mean it's just fabulous and sharing this on the podcast here well hopefully I'm a big fan of creating positive ripple effects and I believe that your story here will help other people to understand how to reach out to those who are affected or for those who are in some kind of debt right now feel that they are able to and that there is someone out there who is willing more than willing to hear to what they need help with and to to reach out to make sure that they're okay so Trish thank you so much for coming on and sharing your your why how would people get in contact with you well, I mean, the easiest way, we obviously have a website, but, uh, and we also have a Facebook page. We're on LinkedIn as well. We're on Instagram as well. It, if they just want to literally reach out um, through one of those channels, they can do that on the website. There is a contact form. Those contact forms come directly, directly into me. They don't go via some weird and wonderful channel um, and they can do that in complete confidence and without obligation if people just need someone to speak to. Uh, we're here to to listen. 
Fantastic. Well, all of the links are in the show notes. So if you're out and about right now, go and check out the, the show notes later and then you'll be able to get in contact with Trish. So thank you, Trish. Thank you. And thank you again to Lisa for bringing us together. That was a wonderful recommendation for, for you to come on the show. How would you like to leave the audience today? I would just want to say, um, as I say, debt is a great leveler. If you if you are in debt or if you know someone who's in debt, the greatest gift you can give them is to is to help them understand that there is a way out. There is a way through. And the minute that you take that first step is that road to recovery. And we just want people to ask the right questions and just signpost people. How has this conversation had an impact on you? What value have you received from tuning in? What are your reflections with actions? Please take a moment to leave me an Apple podcast or Spotify review sharing how Focus on Why has made a difference to you today. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, simply connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or join the Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.